Welcome to episode 9 of the Forensic Files. I'm Dr. N. Today, we're discussing cults. What makes a cult a cult? And how do they differ from any other group of like-minded people? Well, cults have charismatic leaders who draw in followers with false promises related to either improving their lives or the world in some way. The cult leaders are revered as godlike figures, and they tend to be very authoritarian in their leadership. They often have extreme beliefs, and there's always some form of indoctrination or thought reform, aka mind control. There's also exploitation, whether that's sexual, financial, or of some other nature. Though this can describe a lot of groups we wouldn't necessarily consider a modern-day cult. So where's the distinction made? Cults become cults when the manipulation of followers by the leader or the relationship between them becomes destructive. The behaviors of the group and the exploitation of its members usually use elements of social psychology for manipulation and control of followers to do things they may not have done of their own free will. This can include cutting off contact with loved ones, socially isolating themselves, giving most of their wealth to the group, or even committing crimes for the leader. So what is it that draws some people into cults? Are there people who are more susceptible? And you might also be wondering what the steps of indoctrination are. A lot of these groups have those things in common. Sometimes when people are going through a transition or they're looking to improve their lives after having hard times or experiencing a trauma, they're a lot more likely to be open to joining a cult-like group. They're in a very vulnerable state in their lives and they're looking for someone to pull them out of these hard times and to guide them in this transition part of their life. So cult leaders to these particular people present them with a way out, with an answer to their questions, to a way of bettering themselves and their lives, or so they think. The process begins really slowly with a soft sell. It might be a meeting or a casual talk. There's no real pressure at this point from the cult or the leader for that person to join the group. It's more of a wooing process where the leader and other members try to entice the person to want to join the cult and to make that choice for themselves. They usually make the group look like a safe haven, like a sanctuary, somewhere that they would want to spend time, something desirable. Once the person has willingly joined the cult, isolation sets in. The leader will do everything in their power to isolate their followers from the outside world, their families, or anyone else who isn't part of the cult. Over time, your whole life starts to revolve around the cult, and the most important relationship you have is with the cult leader, who is often worshipped and seen as infallible. The leader will solidify your love and admiration of them an ultimate dependence on them by fabricating an external enemy. There's a lot of intimidation used and false facts bestowed upon followers so that they see the outside world as an enemy and something they need the leader to protect them from. 
the leader creates a perpetual state of cognitive dissonance in their followers, making it easier to pressure them to follow their demands. Many of these cult leaders exhibit traits of narcissistic personality disorder, and many of them believe their followers cannot live without them, and the resulting mass suicides are the ultimate way of exerting their control and influences over their followers. At a certain point, the members of the cult will begin to realize that their leader is not infallible. They end up showing their true colors eventually. The reality the leader has constructed starts to fall apart. Unfortunately, many individuals who successfully leave cults have a really hard time integrating into society. Researchers have found troubling symptoms shared among those who leave cults, including depression, guilt, fear, and even memory impairments. This extreme level of persuasion that these people have experienced can actually change them on a fundamental psychological level. The goal of cult leaders is to change the behavior of the follower to serve the leader. Those behavioral changes don't just dissipate quite as much as people may think after the followers are no longer inside the cult. Most cult manipulation can be easily overlooked at first because most of it consists of psychological manipulation and abuse rather than overt physical abuse, which enables the cult to continue to exploit members without being exposed for longer periods of time. And until the public can recognize these psychological tactics as being radical, like physical abuse and manipulation, cults will continue to succeed in our society. I have a couple examples of cults that I want to go through that will highlight these indoctrination steps and problematic behavioral manipulations modeled by the leader. One of them is an older, probably more infamous example of a cult, the People's Temple, which was led by Jim Jones. The other example is more recent, Nexium, that's been all over the news for the last couple of years and is still going through the court process as recently as January of this year with new charges being brought against the founder of that group. So let's start with the People's Temple. The term drink the Kool-Aid derived from this group's tragic end. However, it was flavor-aid that they were drinking, um, not Kool-Aid, and it was laced with cyanide. So Jim Jones used the appeal to social justice to attract followers initially into his cult. But later he used those same tactics to manipulate those followers. The temple gained followers through the use of spiritual healings and traveling around the United States touting their successes. As the temple gained popularity, it also gained scrutiny from the government as a religious organization. Jones had admitted to being an atheist at one point to people even outside of the cult, and there were inquiries into the validity of its religious tax exemption. Jones eventually wanted to create his own socialist paradise, as he called it, a sanctuary away from the media scrutiny given to the temple, or at least that's what he claimed was the purpose of creating Jonestown in Guyana. In reality, 
it was another extreme way of isolating his followers to intensify their devotion to him. By late 1978, there were over 900 people living in Jonestown. Members followed him there after he promised them an escape from the harsh realities and evil influences of the outside world. In November of 1978, Congressman Leo Ryan from California went to Jonestown to investigate allegations of abuse within the temple. While he was there, many members actually told him they wanted to leave with him. Some of these people went back with Ryan to his plane the next day, trying to escape. However, temple security guards were not willing to let them leave. They followed them to the plane and ambushed them, opening fire on the group, killing the congressman, three journalists, and one of the members who was trying to leave. That evening, November 18th, 1978, Jones ordered his congregation to drink the cyanide-laced Flavor-Aid. 918 people died. It was the greatest single loss of American civil life in a deliberate act up until 9-11. The second example I want to talk about is Nexium, and a lot of you in the United States might have heard of this. It's been on the news quite a lot recently, um, and it is a really scary example of how cults still exist in the modern world and how they can go pretty undetected for long periods of time. Nexium was founded by Keith Ranieri in 1998. It was touted as a personal development company offering quote-unquote executive success programs and other self-improvement techniques. He drew people into the group through a unified purpose of self-improvement and bringing more joy to members' lives. Sounds good in theory, right? They all do. Otherwise, why would you join them? The first red flag, having members refer to Ranieri as quote-unquote vanguard and the co-founder as quote-unquote prefect. Ranieri said the name originated from a video game where destroying your enemies increases your own power. Big red flag there. They forced everyone to sign NDAs, or non-disclosure agreements, to protect trade secrets, as they called it, though it was really just a way to hide the brainwashing tactics within their own documentation. They told members the courses were built on evidence-based scientific advice, but they were actually created to condition members to become emotionally dependent on a system of rewards and punishments. So pretty typical classical conditioning. They would destroy members' self-esteem and punish them for failing to achieve their goals while also encouraging them with praise. All of this fed into Ranieri's need for control. As time went on, there were people who called the group a pyramid scheme, a sex cult, and even a sex trafficking operation. This was corroborated with the existence of a secret group within Nexium called the DOS, or DAWS. In Latin, it stands for Dominus Obsequius Sororium, which Ranieri claimed meant quote-unquote female empowerment. Those of you who know some Latin know that it actually means master over female slave, which is pretty much the opposite of female empowerment. And it gets worse. They would indoctrinate women into this sub-secret group by branding them with a special symbol 
Ranieri had some other explanation for what the symbol meant, but it was actually just his initials. Members of this group were abused and forced into sexual slavery. In March of 2017, Ranieri was arrested and indicted on charges of sex trafficking, among other charges. He was convicted of sex trafficking and racketeering in June of 2019. Most recently, in January of this year, 2020, there was a federal lawsuit filed accusing Ranieri, among others, at Nexium, of conducting illegal psychological experiments on members of Nexium, along with abusing them. I will continue to follow this lawsuit as it unfolds and provide updates as they're available. There are certainly a lot of examples of cults I could cover, and I will come back to this topic in more detail in the future, especially as more and more cults are exposed every year. Let me know if there are any you'd like me to cover. Thank you for listening to episode 9. Next week, we'll talk about criminal investigations. I really hope everyone is safe and healthy and doing okay during this really bizarre time. I know the mandates at least in the United States, are different state by state. Uh, But I know in a lot of places there is an order to stay at home. I hope you're all doing that. The new guidance from the CDC also says that everyone should wear a face mask when they have to go out in public. So I hope if you have access to a face mask or the materials to make one, that you do so and practice social distancing and um, protect yourself and those in your community. You can listen to The Forensic Files on the website at the-forensic-files.captivate.fm, which is linked in the episode notes. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and many other platforms. You can find me on Instagram at theforensicfilespod. Please reach out if you have any questions, corrections, suggestions, or requests. The email for this podcast is theforensicfilespod at gmail.com. I really love all the interaction I've been having with people online, especially since a lot of us are cooped up recently. Um, So send me a message, uh, comment on any of the posts I make. I'd love to chat. I would also really appreciate if you could leave me a review, specifically on Apple Podcasts, uh, so more amazing people like you can find this podcast. All episode content was researched, written, and produced by me, Dr. N. All music you hear in the episodes was written and produced by me and classical composer Jeffrey Young. <laughs>